Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, today, we're really excited to continue our journey on educating ourselves on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think many of you know that we started this journey uh, late in 2019 and uh, began with some education to some of our leadership team. And the unfortunate time period of COVID interrupted our schedule for full implementation. <clears throat> Pardon me. But as we know, we've had some significant activity in our communities, in our world, that have made the social injustices even more prevalent. And one of the key themes that we had throughout this time period was many of you sending me notes as well as core leaders that the comfort level in starting conversations with your colleagues uh, that were black or people of color were quite difficult uh, for you and knowing the right words to say. I said that myself. And I know the most important thing is to speak from our hearts. But with that being said, we knew that we would be better served if we had some experts in this area who could provide us some education. So today we are going to be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, start that. Uh, we have our Center for Equity Inclusion colleagues here with us today. I'll introduce them in more spe specificity in just a minute. But as all of you know, we start our gatherings with a reflection or a prayer. And today I want to give you a little bit of a background on this particular reflection we're going to use. We have a group of individuals who have formed a work team called the Providence Response Team. And this group is specifically formed to address the concerns around racial injustice, especially for our black population in Oregon. And as we began to work together, we thought what we needed was some unifying charter to bring all of you into the conversation with us and for also for all of us to know where our work efforts would be placed for this rest of this year and going forward. So instead of maybe a traditional reflection, what I'd like to do is to get some help today from a couple of our three, actually three of our team members who are part of the Providence response team in reading this to you. So I'm going to introduce to you Brianna Ekendam, who is our HR strategic program manager, James Harker, who's our chief executive of population health, and Marilyn Fultz, who is our CHRO for the medical group and clinical programs to help me with this. So we're going to start with Brianna, who will read the purpose. Brianna? Good morning, everyone. Providence has an obligation to take action against systematic racism with specific focus on black people and communities with commitment to our heritage and expressed through our mission, values, and purpose. We will listen to understand all of our stakeholders, integrate ongoing training and education into our workforce, intentionally focus on health disparities, use our voice to seek change, and be an ally with aligned organizations representing people of color and take responsibility for our organizational behaviors and culture. We believe Black Lives Matter. Uh, good morning, everyone. James Harker. Um, there are principles that we will follow uh, as we live out that purpose statement. Before taking action, we will listen to understand. We will be willing to change our behaviors, and we will be open to learning. Our focus is on black people and communities, including health disparities. We will identify our priorities and align our strategy and resources to implement those priorities. 
We will intentionally recruit, hire, and promote a diverse workforce across all levels as we work to break intergenerational poverty by offering living wage jobs and benefits. We will make systemic change, knowing that by going slow, we can go fast. We will refocus and invest resources to support organizations serving the black community. Marilyn, please. Marilyn, you're on mute. Thank you. So I'm reading the priorities. So it's community health disparities and cultural responsiveness, understanding where the black community is with regards to community health issues, as well as patient care services within Providence, realigning resources and grants, advocacy within our communities in Oregon, education, human resources. We have posted a position for a chief diversity and inclusion officer education and training across the region, opening up to listening channels for caregivers. And I'll turn it back over to Lisa Vance. Thank you, Marilyn, and thank you to our readers who uh, helped share that. So we'll be using this information now as we go forward with the work that we're committed to do. And I do want to give you just a couple uh, updates of things that have happened the last few weeks. We were able to meet with the, the People of Color Caucus, the elected officials in our legislature, to really hear from them about some needs that they see in the state of Oregon and how we might be able to partner with them. And that was a really incredible conversation for us to be in with them. In addition, we continue to get more information from our caregivers and from our, our Black Caregiver Resource Group as well. And we're honing in now a little bit more on the community needs and community benefit uh, uh, work that we have. So I would anticipate we'll have even more to share with you over the next few weeks. But not to delay us any longer and get to really uh, the point of our conversation today and move on, I do want to introduce Hanif Fazel, who is our Chief Executive for the Senator for Center for Equity and Inclusion, which we're really excited to work with. Uh, we've been able to work with Hanif and his team uh, already earlier in the year, but excited to move on in this great conversation uh, today. So, Hanif, I'm going to turn it over to you, and welcome to Providence. Thank you, uh, Lisa, and um, hello, everyone out there. Uh, again, the name is Hanif, and uh, I am the CEO and co-founder of the Center for Equity and Inclusion. I just want to say as someone personally who's had a long um, and challenging and uh, at times uh, even uplifting experience with healthcare, it's been an honor to be in partnership with Providence uh, around this work at a really critical juncture uh, in our country's history. And I don't say that lightly. I think we're really in um, unprecedented times. And so as, at the center, um, you know, we started the Center for Equity and Inclusion with the idea that the persistent and ubiquitous racial disparities in this country were such a part of the culture and institutions uh, that are, were a part of on a daily basis that we needed something more than just technical solutions or uh, annual trainings to really close the disparate experience people of color are having to that of their white uh, colleagues. Um, and so we, we felt like and still believe strongly that there needed to be something more transformational, a more transformational approach 
to working around these issues. So the center is um, committed to uh, long-term partnerships with organizations that are interested in transforming their workplace through a deep commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, for us, what that means is that we have the opportunity to work with organizations both locally and nationally across the country. This year alone, we'll work with over 40 um, organizations that are deeply uh, committed to really working on the transformation of the spaces that they're, uh, that they're in. And as part of that uh, experience for us, we are in conversation after conversation after conversation with our partners about, uh, specifically as this pandemic has uh, shown up and the recent racial unrest around the ex uh, experience of black employees and hearing again and again and again the ways in which uh, we're hearing black employees, employees of color in general, but in particular the acute experience of black employees around the experience of racism, both that they're witnessing um, as the racial unrest has come up, as well as the longstanding kind of already existing uh, race, uh, issues of race are showing up in the space. And at the same time, we're also hearing from managers across all races who are really struggling to figure out how do we support our black employees in this time, given the acute nature of what we're seeing and experiencing on a daily basis uh, over the last couple of months. So we're um, thankful and excited to be uh, part of this conversation. And in particular, really, there's three objectives that we have for today. Um, one is we just want to practice centering the voices of those most impacted, uh, create space for those voices to have standing and to lead. Uh, two, by centering black perspectives, uh, we're hoping that we can begin to more deeply understand some of the underlying causes of the racial disparities uh, that our black colleagues uh, and community is experiencing. And three, I think uh, as important as being able to locate where and how these issues are showing up, we're hoping that we can begin to identify some initial steps that any manager or caregiver can give in order to begin to support uh, their black colleagues and also find pathways forward. So we're really wanting to be able to engage around that uh, kind of context. And to be able to do this, uh, I appreciate Lisa talking about earlier, just managers um, figuring out how do we navigate this conversation or uh, building comfort with uh, a little more comfort with the, or certainty around the conversation. One way that we think it, um, it's always helpful being to navigate this conversation is just to have some basic agreements around how we, tend, how we want to engage with one another. Over time, uh, in our partnership with you all, we hope to socialize uh, these agreements across the system. But for now, we just want to do some basic introduction of those. And if we just um, we can just press the button there and um, see the agreements coming down here in a second. We have uh, stay engaged, uh, speak your truth responsibly, listen and understand, be willing to do things differently and experience discomfort, respect and accept non-closure and confidentiality. Uh, over time, again, we'll spend time really figuring out what all of these in particular mean and how to build a relationship to these agreements. For today, in particular, I'm hoping people are willing to focus in on two agreements in particular. One is uh, stay engaged, and the other is around listening to understand. And what I know about the conversation around race equity is that um, it's rarely a comfortable conversation for anybody involved. And um, that 
typically these conversations, um, when they when they show up and we're doing it in an authentic way, when people are really speaking the truth responsibly, we're hearing perspectives that are different than sometimes we have uh, heard before. Uh, oftentimes white people are hearing uh, folks of color really speak truth uh, about their experience in a way that um, they haven't before. And sometimes what happens, not always, um, is that as you hear new perspectives or as things come up that are incongruent from what you've been taught or how you've been seen, uh, your experience of race, there is a way in which sometimes we see the people disengage from the conversation. And so they either um, just literally walk away from it, um, they get judgmental about the conversation, they um, rationalize why whoever's speaking is saying something wrong or right, any of that stuff. And so what we're going to really ask for for today is as people feel a level of discomfort or as they're see feeling themselves disconnecting for whatever reason, if that tends, if that happens, um, that we just notice today, just notice like, okay, what is being said? Uh, how, which perspectives show up that have me feel as if um, I'm disconnecting from this conversation and just be in some inquiry around, around that today. Um, and that's connected to this idea of listen to understand. And I think one of the experiences I'll say that most people of color have in a conversation around race equity is that the more honestly and authentically that they speak about their experience of race, um, the experience um, around that can often be discounting, minimizing, or rationalizing. So having people, and particularly white folks in this conversation, begin to um, disagree with the experiences of people of color or discount those experiences uh, one way or the other. And so um, that oftentimes can just shut down the conversation or um, really inhibit people of color's ability to speak the truth responsibly. So part of what we're hoping today is that if someone is bringing up a perspective that is different than yours, that is new to you, that um, it runs counter to um, how you've been taught to see or understand race, rather than um, disagree or rather than try to point out how or why the speaker may have it wrong, we're hoping that people can sit into a space of just wondering and curiosity. Like, what does this, uh, what does this mean, or why, how did this person get to this perspective? And in particular, when we get into a conversation around this, where I think we're stuck points show up, is the idea that if we focus on the black experience, then we're not um, automatically, we're discounting everybody else's experience. And so as we center the black experience today, one of the things I'm hoping that we can begin to just sit in around listening and understand is, um, how is centering the black experience, how does centering the black experience allow us to better serve all of our, uh, all of the people that we're charged to serve? Uh, what does that, how does that, how does that support that? Um, and what we, so just so we can sit in some inquiry around that, I think it'll be um, really helpful for us. So we'll try that on today. Again, we'll spend more time. Uh, unpacking uh, these agreements and what it means for us to live within these agreements around these conversations. I do want to note that, um, again, we talked to so many people around uh, over the last, the last even two weeks, and I just want to kind of put up uh, a number of quotes that are show, uh, come up, that has just come up in conversations I've had with leaders in organizations just over the last two weeks, and we can kind of just have them just roll down. Um, and they range, I think when you look at these, quotes, um, what you'll see is they really range, right? So um, since the George Floyd killings and all the protests, I've had three different white higher-ups reach out to me over the phone. 
I rarely have contact with them, so for them now to reach out feels so awkward, right? Uh, I honestly have been disappointed with the lack of reaching out by some of my white friends and community. Um, we had a patient continue to call one of our nurses the N-word, right? Uh, at, at the range, as a black woman, I'm embarrassed that I hadn't thought about what our black staff are needing right now or the toll this is having on them. Um, I feel like I just need a day off to regroup or get myself back into a better space. I have one more white person asked me how I'm doing. Um, to I was shocked the other day at a board meeting when this white guy who was a staunch Trump supporter sat down right next to me and asked, how are you doing? I mean, uh, what we've done when it comes to racism and all that we've done to the black community is a complete shame. I was floored and thought, wow, things are changing. So I think if you look, and this is just a small sample of what, and this is literally just the last two weeks of conversations with uh, black, brown employees, with uh, white managers, black managers, leaders all across uh, literally the country. Um, and we can go on and on, but you can see kind of the wide ranging from um, I don't want to hear from white people to I'm frustrated with white people not asking to how do I, you know, it's on and on and on. Um, it's going, uh, it's showing up. I'm um, really excited to, um, I mean, I'm looking forward to engaging um, with the panel today to figure out how do we navigate the complexity of race as it's showing up, um, both external and internally at Providence. Um, I do want to say that there are no right answers, and as we have a panel um, here of colleagues of yours, that they don't represent all views on race or all black views on race, but theirs and give us at least a snapshot of a perspective on how race is showing up for them and opens the door for us to be in broader, longer term conversations. So I really am hoping and looking forward to this being a jumping off point around this conversation. So uh, with that said, um, we want to just get into the conversations and um, begin to introduce the panel uh, today. So we have uh, four panelists, and we have um, a set of introduction uh, cues that they'll all um, introduce themselves with. Um, so um, we'll go ahead and introduce that. I'm going to have uh, Trisha introduce herself first. Trisha is um, not a Providence employee, is actually um, a community member, part of the CEI team, has um, extensive experience in health care um, and race equity. And so, uh, Trisha, I'll allow you to or have, have you introduce yourself, and then we'll pass it on. Thanks. Thank you, Hanif, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Hanif said, my name is Trisha Tillman, and I am a health equity, equity, diversity, and inclusion strategist. Um, and a part of the CEI team, and I'm very happy to be here. Um, how do I identify ethnically? Um, my background is mixed. Um, my father was African-American from New Orleans, and folks um, may know that has its own particular culture and history. Um, and my mother was uh, white and Native American, uh, and my, her white background, my grandfather said, was Pennsylvania Dutch. So for me, my ethnicity represents uh, Africans abducted into slavery, uh, Native Americans, indigenous populations, and uh, immigrant, the immigrant experience. Um, and I'm really excited, happy to participate on this panel because it represents to me a deep 
commitment from the whole of Providence and really an opportunity to honor and elevate the leadership of black folks, black caregivers within Providence have experienced in leadership and I'm excited to share my perspective. Thank you. Uh, Marilyn, how about uh, we go with you? Hi, thank you everyone. Um, I'm Marilyn Fultz, um, and I am the Chief Human Resources Officer for the Medical Group and Clinical Programs, and I identify myself as Black. Um, what that sort of, the word Black means to me is to be brilliant and troubled at the same time. It also requires a lot of resilience, and it also means that I have to be aware of racism constantly. Um, the reason why I wanted to participate or move to participate on the panel is because I believe as um, being the chair of the Black Caregiver Resource Group, um, I've been supporting members and caregivers. And by offering resources and a listening ear, I also believe it's important to be an advocate as well as a voice because sometimes there's a perception that some voices are not heard or valued. Thank you. Benga, how about you? Bingo, you're on mute. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Benga Belomose. I am the Regional Director for Respiratory Therapy for the Oregon Region. Um, so, um, how, what's my, you know, how do I identify myself? Um, I'm African. Um, my parents are Nigerian. I was born in Nigeria. Um, and I grew up in not only Nigeria, uh, and I also, um, grew up in England, you know, before, I um, moving to, um, to the United States. Uh, so, you know, I have, um, um, I've lived in, you know, multiple continents and I have a different perspective as to how, um, um, Black people are treated in different um, parts of the world, you know, from, you know, Africa, you know, Nigeria um, to, you know, you know, the England, you know, the British system and also in the U.S. and the differences that I have um, uh, seen um, to me, uh, why um, um, being on the panel, I think just you know, having a different perspective uh, from, you know, um, from someone who works for Providence, and and I love that you know Providence is taking a um, a big leap in trying to make sure um, issues about equity is addressed, and I believe that Oregon is the first region that's trying to do something like this. So um you know when I was invited to be part of this, you know it was something that I was you know wholeheartedly wanted to be part of this process. Thank you. Great, thank you, and Linda. Uh, my name is Linda Chocolate. I am a clinic manager for PMG. Uh, how I identify myself is both uh, Black and African American. Both is okay with me. And what makes me want to participate in this uh, is that I am always one to push for change. 
for African Americans. Um, also, I can identify really well with uh, the movement because I am from the great state of Mississippi. Grew up, born and raised um, on a plantation with my father of a second, third grade education. So uh, challenges and poverty and all that stuff is just something that I can identify with very well. And that's why I'm participating today to hope to promote change for African Americans within Providence. Thank you. And maybe, uh, Linda, maybe if you're okay, um, we can start with you because there's so many um, questions to get at in this conversation. And I just want to, again, I want to reiterate that um, as any of the panel speak, uh, members speak, they're not speaking for all people. Um, they're just bringing their perspective. And the answers to these questions aren't easy and simple. They're really complex and wide-varying. And so... Um, you know, Linda, as you saw the earlier quote uh, coming up in the wide range of kind of experiences uh, black folks are having and then also um, folks who are trying to support black folks in this moment, um, I think there's just general confusion, you know, around like, what do we do? And I just want to name, we've seen the things that we've been exposed to over the last two, three months have been so traumatic. And I understand that these things have happened uh, and been ongoing, and we were seeing visuals literally of people um, being killed right in front of us and watching. It's just really traumatic experience, I think, for any person, much less than I think most acutely for black folks watching folks in their own community have this experience again and again. And so I think it seems like people are really recognizing, hey, there's stuff going on here. I'm not, I'm confused on how to support it. And so um, maybe you could just speak to what support has been meaningful to you as a caregiver of color? What support has been meaningful to me as a person of color? Um, that That's a, a hard, hard uh, question to answer, but I'll give it a try. It's not really about the support because each individual needs something different. So what's good for one is not good for the person that's sitting right next to you. Um, and what I mean by that simply is that um, someone sitting next to you could have lost a child through police brutality. Somebody, you know, sitting next to you, uh, such as myself, could grow up in uh, rural Mississippi where crosses are burned and um, you know, father is saying, yes, sir, no, sir, all the days of his life. And you're looking at him saying, that's not going to be me. So so when our, I would say my white counterpart approaches me and asks me about what kind of support I need, it's just be your, be who you are. If you don't understand, you know, how to relate to black Americans or a black person or a black coworker or caregiver, then that's okay. You know, it's okay to say, you know, I don't understand what you're going through. And um, to be quick, I ask a couple of my, uh, I call them my coworkers because we work together, not for each other. But I ask them, I walked in the room and I sat down in the chair and they both looked at me and I said, what does it feel to be white? And they looked at me and they go, um, well, why are you asking? 
And I say, I want to know what does it feel to be white to wake up every day and walk out your house as a child, as a teenager? And they said, they didn't, I, I don't think about it. Well, what does it feel to be black? I think about it every day. You know, I think about it every moment when I first leave home. Am I going to be safe? You know, how am I going to carry myself? Is my southern dialect going to pop out and people are going to think that, you know, she doesn't speak well and she doesn't write well? You know, so it's always a challenge to be black every day. So I would say to my white uh, counterparts, when you approach a, a black person to want to really know and sincerely know how you're doing, it's okay to focus on how are you doing and not uh, bring in the tragedies of today. Because to us, like I said, the tragedy is ongoing. It, it didn't start today. And so it's kind of strange when people say, how are you doing about what's happening today? So I hope that helps. It does. Thank you so much. There's so much there. I want to come back and follow up a little. There's so much there. Um, and I want to also just uh, bring in Marilyn and Benga. Um, uh, Marilyn, you want to add on to that in any way when you think about, from your perspective, what support has been meaningful to you as a caregiver of color? What comes up for you? Or if you want to even just build off of what Linda said, either one. Yeah. So um, I have to really start off by saying that I think I'm truly blessed that um, the PMG and the medical group and the clinical program executive team is very supportive, as well as the, um, my CHRO's colleagues here in Oregon. So I have that support. But that said, what media support would mean to me is for me to be heard, to be validated, and to acknowledge of my story. So my story may not be your story, but it's my life experience. And then just having that opportunity to be safe voice any of those concerns. So that's kind of what menial support means to me, to just be heard, to be listened, and to be validated, and to understand that it may not be your experience, but it's my everyday experience. And Bing, I see you shaking your head. Before I come to you real quick, Marilyn, you, you just said, hey, you feel like within your group, you feel like you the support's been there. So has that been the experience for you there that when you speak to these issues, there's a sense of feeling heard, validated, or are there some other things that are also other ways you're being supported in the workspace? I think um, to me, or I think it's been really encouraging is, you know, for my executive team that I support on the medical group and clinical program, they may not understand it completely, but it's their awareness and their acknowledgement that they want to know more about it and how they can support me. And I think that goes a very long way. And then also my um, CHR Oregon peers here in Oregon, um, they listen and they, you know, they follow back up with me and say, you know, you're, I, you know, thanks for doing this work. I know it's hard. So it's just that validation that it's different for them, but they're willing to embrace that and to really be uncomfortable to understand what it's like for black caregivers in Oregon. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Benga, uh, for you, what's coming up when you hear? Um, uh, Linda and Marilyn speak or just in response to the, the question itself? You know, I, I totally agree uh, with what Linda said because support for um, one person is going to be totally different for what somebody else's need or what they consider support. 
uh, for me, I have a good you know, relationship with, with my boss, and I don't really need my boss to let me know that um, they support me. Um, it's something that, that I know, <clears throat> and I know that if it's um, some kind of help that I need, I could easily go to them to make sure that um, I have um, these conversations if something is really bothering me. <clears throat> and then also know that there are resources out there. Um, I don't really know if a lot of people know that there are resources in Providence that are available uh, to people when they need it. You know, maybe because of my title, I know some of this uh, resources. Um, so to me, I do feel the support is there. Now, on the other hand, you know, when I start looking at support as a um, as a Providence employee, but not only a, a Providence employee, as a father trying to raise two boys in this day and age, you know, that is something different because um, the conversation um, that a um, a non-black person will have with the kids will be totally different from the kind of conversations that I have with my kids. Um, you know, my my boys are 33 and 25, and and they're in the age where, you know, um, my younger son, you know, um, said, "Oh yeah, well, I I'm scared to to drive because when I see, um, you no, know, a cop car starts shaking." Now this is uh, this is uh, an adult. No, he's um, I I consider him to be very very smart. You know, he's in the side B program, so he is someone who. I believe knows what is going on, but to me, you know, I I talk about you know emotional trauma. How do I actually or, or racial trauma? How do I actually support my family members in this day and age to know that um, they could um, withstand the test of time, uh, knowing what to do or what not to do, uh, not to be um, you know when you know um, questions are, are asked, not to answer with a question but to provide the response and then maybe ask a a question. So to me from uh, my um, in, in my role here, I feel like I'm very, very supported um, and I know that there are resources out there for me if I need it. Uh, ben, can I ask you something? You brought up parent, being a parent here and um, it's bringing up something around um, what uh, people of color in general have to navigate in the workspace. Um, and in this moment, we're talking about the black experience, how, what black folks are having to navigate. And I, one time I was working with a facilitator, uh, uh, an African-American woman, and she said this, um, that as a black woman, she feels like she's either positioned um, in spaces to be as subhuman or superhuman. She doesn't get to be just human. And by that, it means I think a little bit of what she was getting at is in these moments, you're talking about yourself as a parent, and I can only imagine watching what's happening play out on TV and uh, all of the all of what must come up for you as a parent around the safety of your child. And um, you know, when that's threatened, I think all parents understand that you just go into this space of like nothing is more important than the safety of your child, like nothing. Um, and so I'm just wondering about you as a parent who is worrying about your child's safety, watching things unfold, having these conversations, and then a little bit like the, the article that we have people read and coming to work the next day and acting as if like, okay, you know, here's the fact, you know, I, that are, you know, so like um, sometimes it feels like an unreasonable 
or expectation um, that black folks have to see this kind of trauma playing out, deal with it at home, and then come to work as if nothing's happening. Um, and so I don't know if that um, – it sounds like um, when you talk about being supported in the workspace, that's happening for you, that you get to be a little more human and talk a little bit more about what's going on, or how does that resonate for you? How are you balancing – the experience of a father and a human being around this and then coming into a workspace that isn't always um, conscious of, of that? Well, you know, for my team, I, I one of the things that I do is I make sure that it's a safe space um, for everyone, um, a space where they could um, come and voice whatever that's on their mind. Um, you know, the notion of, you know, um, you are hired to do a job, <clears throat> leave all your baggage at the door and just come in and, and do that and do your job. <clears throat> it's not really the notion um, in this day and age, because when you when we hire people, when we bring people onto the team, you have to be able to support them, not only um you know, physically, but also mentally. You know, a lot of people have issues that they're dealing with um, in their own private lives, and that's what makes that person uh, the kind of worker that they have. And if, you know, I could support them knowing the resources that they have, you know, then they'll know that, yes, you know, that's the kind of support that, that they may need. And sometimes it just uh, it's just me just making sure I create a a comfortable environment where they could just, you know, you know, uh, vent. You know, I don't really have to say anything because sometimes, you know, you don't really have to say anything to say a lot. To, to say a lot. Um, it's just creating that environment where people feel like they can come and voice whatever's going on. And it's not only for, um, you, know, you know, black caregivers. You know, I've had, you know, um, white caregivers that have approached me and making sure that, you know, it's an environment where it's still safe, where they can also voice their concern as well. Thank you. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about, um, and I appreciate uh, you three talking about, hey, what does support look like for you um, in your own apartments or how you're providing support? Um, and so part of what I'm hearing is just the acknowledgement of it, the ability to create a space where there's some freedom to talk honestly and genuinely about your experiences or how things are showing up or how this is impacting you on a day-to-day. And to have that experience feel seen and heard and understood. Um, Linda, I appreciate you naming that, hey, one size doesn't fit all. So for some people, they may want that space to feel heard and listen to and understand. Other people may not want to talk about it. Um, and we have to kind of navigate that into, almost individually by asking, you know, hey, what are you needing? How can how can we support partnership here? So thank you. This initial perspective on that is so helpful. And I mean, sometimes people have this question, too, which is, um, it's good to hear what, what to do. Um, are there um, kinds of messages that core leaders should avoid? Um, what kind of approaches are less helpful um, in, in this conversation? And so, Marilyn, maybe we can start with you um, around what should, we, what should we be avoiding as we jump into this conversation? Yeah. So, um that's a really good question. So I'll just be pretty transparent here. But I think the one thing that core leaders should really stay away from is to quote, all lives matter. Because um, we all recognize that all lives matter, right? But it's that black caregiver lives are more in danger. And so when people do that, 
it's a it's not very sensitive and it's so it gives this image about um even though you're in danger my life still matter and so i think that's enough uh, for caregivers that's taken personally like well but you're not the one getting killed every day. You're not the one being stopped by police officers. You don't have children that you have to make sure you teach them how to respond when you're in a crisis. You're not the one that has to go into stores where you're constantly watched and monitored to make sure you use, make sure you're not selling anything. You don't have to have a receipt everywhere you go, even if it's just to the 7-Eleven store. So um, again, I think we all recognize that all lives matter, but for black caregivers, it's really, it's it's such a trauma around that wording about all lives matter because everyone's lives does matter. But just to be cautious around that. And so sometimes I was talking to one of my um, one of my neighbors and they said, people say that and she's, she's white um, because it's the reality of not having to self-reflect um, inside deeper. Why do I have to say that? Why do I need to feel like I have to say all lives matter? So... I think that's one thing I think Corley just should really stay away from that saying all lives matter. So that's just my opinion. And if we're not getting your audio right now, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Linda, do we want, can we just uh, go ahead and uh, you want to build on that one in terms of uh, what messages leaders should be avoiding or approaches people should be avoiding to uh, working with uh, their black colleagues and coworkers? Um, uh, yes. I think that uh, we should probably stay away from any conversation that you as an individual feel that it's forced. If you approach them and you want to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter or politics or anything uh, pertaining to our life outside of work, if it feels like a forced conversation, it probably is. And I would say, you know, try to uh, approach that person as an individual versus what's going on out in the community right now. And what I mean by that is uh, instead of saying, how are you doing today with all of this going on in the street? You might say, just how are you doing today? You know, how's your family? And, and usually people will, they need somebody to talk to. They're just going to spew everything. It's just going to come out. Um, so I would say stay, try to stay away from forced conversations. Um, be open when, when people want to talk. I know that getting the job done and taking care of the patients and all those things or whatever you're doing, you may not be in the clinic. I'm in the clinic, so that's my reference. But, uh, you know, always go back. You know, try to go back and try not to forget about that moment when that person was trying to approach you to have that conversation. Um, there's not very much that I can say you should stay away from other than recognizing the fact when somebody wants to talk about a certain topic, they want to talk about it. If they don't, it's okay. They will find a supervisor or a coworker or a mentor or somebody else to, to listen to them. It's a trust thing. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Banga, for you, things that we should avoid? 
Well, I, I just wanted to build on what Linda just said. Um, sometimes um, people want to talk about what's going on in the world. Um, and it may be going on in their own personal life that um, people may not really know about. I think we should not... Um, um, we should not create an environment where we feel or, or caregivers feel like they cannot really talk about it because I think that's more, um, um, it could create a frustration as their leader doesn't really care about them. They like, they're not being heard. Uh, because the more you try to, you know, prevent, you know, conversations like this, which, you know, as you mentioned, um, uh, um, Hanif, it, it's a, it's a difficult conversation to have. Um, because when you start talking about what's going on in the news, um, I think leaders should not, you know, um, disregard and just say, well, you know, in this environment, you know, don't talk about what's going on, you know, just, you know, um, just do your work. Um, I think we need to be able to um, have um, an environment where people could talk about what they are feeling. And I think, um, so I'll just say, you know, for leaders, you know, to try to entertain and not say, okay, well, this environment is something that you're not, you're not going to talk about this. Conversation can get so complicated, and there's a great question that came up on the – there's a lot of great questions that are coming up on the chat, uh, the uh, Q&A. There's one in particular I want to um, ask you all, because um, on one hand I'm hearing, hey, we've got to create space to have this conversation. It's so important for um, us to create spaces that are safe for black employees to, and caregivers to be able to speak their experience in a genuine way, to feel to have that listened to and heard that we want to approach the conversation with just, hey, how are you doing? Or, um, you know, how can we be in partnership? That kind of more out of a place of curiosity. At the same time, there's, there's a great question here. Um, I'm going to read it off the, the screen here. Um, does it feel traumatic to have white people collectively walking up to the black experience at the same time when this isn't happening for so long and falling on mostly deaf ears? So, like, to have white people continually come up and ask you, how are you doing, how are you doing, or I'm really energized about this now, or, you know, all that kind of stuff, because um, it has been going on for so long in really overt way, and for whatever reason, we can get in that conversation later on why now in this moment. Um, so, on one hand, I hear, hey, we need to create space for the conversation. On the other hand, is, is there too much? Is there ever too much, you know, or how do you, Marilyn, what do you, what do you, what comes up for you when you hear that question? Well, um, I think the intentions are good, but I think um, sometimes you sort of feel like is the sense of um, understanding um, what this means truly resonating with them? Um, it's not really a book club. Um, it's really wanting to learn the history, right? Because some of us didn't know that history growing up as children because we didn't get taught that history in school, but I think um, that just that chronic state of danger that people that people of color constantly feel on an ongoing basis, um, it can be really challenging. And I think, um, and it, it does kind of add more to the trauma around that. But I also recognize that people are trying to do the right thing. And, and if we're asking people to have these conversations, then we do have to give them grace and the space to do that. Um, but I think um, it's just that we're all uncomfortable right now and we just all have to embrace it. 
But I think when you're uncomfortable, that's when you learn. Like you, you develop to be a greater person through your most difficult challenges, right? So I think by everyone just sort of embracing each other and just being open to that, I think that sort of helps that um, in the long run. But I think right now it's just totally uncomfortable for both parties. But I think each party's trying. Uh, I love that. I, I appreciate you saying it's uncomfortable all around for uh, white folks trying to jump into the conversation, for black folks having to answer that. Um, Bingo, what about you? Is it, uh, for, from your perspective, can it be too much sometimes uh, having, or can it re-traumatize sometimes having, you know, multiple colleagues coming up and asking, how are you doing, how are you doing, that kind of stuff? Um, what comes up for you around that question? You know, I think for um, different individuals, I think it's different. Um, you know, for some, it may be too much. For some, it may not be enough. Um, you know, it could be an environment where, you know, it creates an outlet for people to really speak their mind. Because if you come to me and you ask me how am I doing, I think that you, uh, by asking me that question, you want a sincere response. <clears throat> and, you know, my response does not really need to trigger a response from you. It may just be just listen to what I'm saying. Um, you know, as co-leaders, you know, we don't really need to have a response for everything. Sometimes the best thing is just to um, just listen. And, you know, uh, it's uncomfortable, but in that, um, uh, in that environment, you know, you learn, for, you know, more about that person and which actually improves the relationship, uh, in, in the long run. So to me, I, I don't really think it's, you know, it's enough. I think, you know, people asking me that question, you know, you know, I'll hope that they want a, a sincere response from me. And if it's something that I want to talk about, then at that time, I will um, I'll talk about it. Now, for some people, they may say, well, you know, that's too much. Um, but it's, you know, everyone have a different perspective on, on, on that kind of response. Uh, Linda, what, what comes up for you in this one? What comes up for me is that you, you know, is it too much? Um, I think that as a, as a leader or, or you have to kind of balance that and also allow space for those that feel like every day when I come to work, they're talking about Black Lives Matter. It's too much. And we have to make it a safe place, as, you know, we've mentioned several times, for caregivers that feel that it's too much because our white um, caregivers and our white coworkers and, you know, this could all be too much and it causes trauma to them also. I know this is about black lives and I know it's about our black caregivers. I understand that, but I think that we need to also maintain respect for all, for everybody that's in our team. We have a large Hispanic, uh, at my clinic anyway, group of people that work with, with us. You know, we have LGBTQ, I messed that up, but, but our lesbian and gay community that works in my clinic. So everybody has their own issues going on right now. And just because we're talking about black lives and black things that's happened to black caregivers, we cannot forget that this, these other groups are out here and they also have some concern. And as a leader, we need to be aware of that and we need to also make space and room for that. So I think it's about respecting and allowing people to feel overwhelmed, regardless to whether they're black, white, Asian, whatever. So that's, that's my concern. Hey, Linda, I really appreciate that. I mean, it touches on what Marilyn said a little earlier around everyone's uncomfortable right now. Everyone 
is struggling with how to have this conversation. And I appreciate in all of this that sometimes I think in in our culture, there's like one right way to do this or one wrong way to do this. And what I hear you all saying is it's nuanced. It's not that easy as a one right approach or one wrong approach. And that we've got to kind of sit in a space, which is hard, but it's like where we're going to learn how to uh, interact and connect with each other. And I also, it's just, I appreciate you naming because I think uh, that a focus on black, the black experience does not mean that we're not focusing on all other people, right? Um, and that it's possible to actually use the black experience as an entryway into how we serve all people. Um, and it doesn't have to be an either or. Either we're just focusing on the black experience and we don't focus on anybody else. Um, or um, we're focusing on everybody and we don't get to focus on the black experience. And so it would be something for the, um, I think, all folks listening to be thinking about how is um, how can we use the focus on the black experience as an entry point into the Latino experience, LGBTQ experience, all those kinds of experiences um, that are also having disparate experiences of health, back care, and access, and all of that. Um, Trisha, we haven't heard from you yet. You, you've taken in a ton. Trisha's uh, sitting not too far from me. Uh, I'm just, um, I'm really wondering what's coming up for you in all of this. I, uh, any responses to any and all of it? What's, what's oh, coming up for you? Yeah, many, many thoughts. Um, first, I think I want to just highlight and um, remind people that you have a huge resource within Provenance in the black leaders that you have both here on the panel and beyond. Um, and I just really want to start by appreciating them for sharing their experiences and their perspectives um, and just acknowledging that that's steeped in both a personal experience but also years of professional training and development. I feel like this moment that we're in right now is this critical time of acknowledging that um, how racism shows up in our lives and that we are reacting to um, not just the, the murder of George Floyd, but also we're seeing images every day of how black people are being targeted for doing everyday things, like walking down the street or going to the store or going into their own apartment or swimming in a hotel pool. These uh, experiences that experiences that many of us, black, white, brown, others, take for granted, but that can be racialized in a moment's notice. And so as we see these images daily, I think what we're seeing is that the system that we thought worked for everybody, or if it didn't work for you, somehow it was your fault, is not accurate, that the system has actually been designed in a way to privilege some people over other people. Some people can go home to their apartment or walk to the store or sit in their car without any worries, never thinking about it, and other people have to be on guard all the time. And so I think, to me, the question is, what do you do when you're presented with this new information? That the way that the world is organized for you and your family is organized radically differently for black people and their families, or Latino people and their families, or LGBT their families. And I think this moment calls for this great unlearning and relearning. Many people will say, I never knew this. I didn't know about the Tulsa race riots. I didn't know that when black people had a black Wall Street, 
that the U.S. sent in troops to, to burn it down. I didn't know this. So what do you do when you know that? Um, and I think when we talk about support, what that means is, to me, support means that white people do their work. They start with their own learning, integrating new information, and then checking it out with people. Um, it's, it's really hard, and I do think, to the question, it is re-traumatizing when people say, wow, this is a wake-up call. And, and it is, on one hand, a wake-up call if you have been asleep, if you haven't been paying attention. And so I think that's part of the work that needs to be done and what needs to be acknowledged is that white people have been able to move forward thinking that the system is fair, uh, that you're judged on your merit, that you're judged on your character, and that may have been something that worked for you or you were given the benefit of the doubt, but that's not how the system works for everyone. You know, there's so many good questions coming up, and um, Trisha, I'm going to ask you one more because this stuff around parents and being a parent. I know you're a parent, um, and I think it's it's core to this, right? Like, parent being a parent is such a such core deep part of our identities, and when that part of our identity feels threatened, um, and I, I just can't, I mean, when you talk about, like, just sitting in your car as having something to navigate, your safety, you're navigating, just sitting in your car, I just can't imagine what it feels like to be a parent and have that constant, like, hey, is my child going to be okay today, you know, like, all that kind of stuff, and how that must, let me say this, like, I have a daughter. She, when she's struggling in school, sometimes I'm in the middle of my day, I'm wondering, like, hey, okay, how's she doing today, all that kind of stuff. I can't, and that's like, she's having a hard time, you know, like, got stomach ache today, or she got whatever, you know, like, whatever else it is. I can't imagine, like, if the safety and well-being of my child was um, in a constant conversation, how you navigate the day. And so there's a question that came up um, that I just want to um, name, which is, um, I agree with the difficulties of being a parent of, of black children. Uh, a black person living and working in predominantly white environment is a daily struggle. What recommend, recommendations do you have for the sole black caregiver in a department who also happens to be a core leader? I don't have the advantage of having a safer space uh, because I'm the leader. All of my direct reports are already comfortable. Yes, you solve for that, and after you solve for that one, write, write it, sell it. You know, <laughs> but, but um, what thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I I definitely feel the the challenge of both um, the experience of being a parent of um, raising black children, and also being the only one in the work environment. Um, one of the other pieces that I wanted to mention about support, what does support look like at work in particular, I'm going to tackle that one first, is um, one of the things that has felt, I think, supportive to other um, people of color and other work environments where I have done work is to create safer spaces for black employees, safer spaces for employees of color to be able to gather. There's a different experience um, of empathy when um, employees of color are able to gather and share and um, recognizing that there are people of color in leadership roles um, who are the only ones, and they're probably experiencing multiple um, 
experiences of either overt or very subtle racism at work as black leaders, that, that there is a need for extra support and uh, validation of their role and their work and just on a day-to-day basis. Um, the other piece, that, and I think just maybe a reiteration of what I said before, is we really do need to invest in white people doing their work and understanding how the system of racism in, in some ways has benefited them, but in other ways has um, hampered their ability to understand the world as it really is. Um, and that holds us all back. So my, my assumption is that this one black leader in supervising a lot of white caregivers is probably being questioned on their expertise, on uh, their wisdom, on their strategy, on their approach, on, you know, whether they're doing too much or too little, they're too strict or too lenient. There's a kind of a barrage of um, flights that can happen when um, black folks are in leadership and needing to both reinforce the role of the and the success of the black person in leadership, but also hold uh, white caregivers accountable to how they engage in that dynamic because you need to recognize that is not typical, right? Historically, black people did not supervise white people. This might be the first experience of white people being supervised by somebody black. Um, as a parent, I think two things. When I hear that question, I think two things. One, recognizing that as as black mothers and black fathers, we experience multiple things. One is a national assumption that we are worse parents. We care less. We um, are not involved. We are not engaged. We are not competent as parents. That shows up in um, kind of the public narrative and in systems that we have built. Um, and yet, when you look at the actual data and the actual experience, black parents are very engaged. Black fathers are very present in the lives of their children. And this is painful to have to have the talk, right, which for many people would mean like a sex talk. But for black families, it means to talk about what do you do to stay alive if, if and when you encounter the police. That's painful. Um, I think the other part of the question that wasn't asked is what is the responsibility of white parents, right? Because the murderers of George Floyd had uh, white parents. The person he was on the neck of George Floyd had white parents. He was raised by white parents. Um, many of the police who were involved in uh, racialized police violence had white parents. So I think part of that conversation has to be as a white parent, what, what am I doing? to interrupt the experience of racism that is so pervasive um, that I have to actively engage to make sure that my child is not going to college and uh, wearing blackface at a party or not entering a workforce and being discriminatory or not, um, you know, bullying kids because they look different um, or, you know, wear their hair different or uh, speak differently. Thank you um, so much there. I want to build on this um, uh, with the other three panelists. Um, Linda, if we can start with you on this one, um, and there's a kind of a follow-up question I want to touch on here. Um, but first, any thoughts you have around 
you know, this question that came in on the Q&A around, hey, I'm the, I'm the sole black person, um, and how do I navigate that space? Uh, what comes up for you when you hear that? Um, and then I do want to follow up with a question. There's a question that came up around safer spaces, and what does that actually mean? Um, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So, Linda, what comes up for you? Uh, I can relate to that. I'm the sole black person lots of time. So um, strategies for me is uh, some places I can't, I don't have any control over, but the uh, areas in which I do, I, I make a difference. Uh, I have this thing called, uh, you know, we all understand the chain of command. So I have um, this thing called the service of command. I'm in, I'm the manager. I'm in a position to serve the people that work under my leadership. And so what I do is uh, my first line, of course, is my supervisors, my nurse quality, my medical director, and I try to serve them well. I try to support them to make sure and, you know, help them with whatever they need, uh, because I know that if I do that, that they're going to do a great job when they're supervising and leading the, the um when they're leading the caregivers, they're supporting our patients, and our patients will get good care. So I do have a service of command that I, I, I take pride in. Um, I also don't want to be the only one at my clinic. So when uh, I don't always get to hire the staff that work at my location, but I have those conversations with my leaders that are in hiring positions, and I don't hesitate to say, you know what, we need to diversify our clinic. Um, I look around, I know that I don't have any males, I ask for males. If I don't have African-Americans or black, I ask for African-Americans or black, and I go on, I ask for white, I ask for Asian, and I try to not let there be one of, of just one black person or one Asian person. So that's a conscious effort on my part. So I would, the, the advice that I would say is control the things that you can control and the things that's out of your control. Always sit down with your leaders. You know, uh, I have a, a great manager that I report directly to and, you know, I feel comfortable and, and we talk about these things all the time. You know, so, Everybody is not comfortable with that, but I think that as black people, we need to find a place to be comfortable with that. And um, that's the part regarding um, the question that the person sent in. Love that. Hey, and let me just do one quick follow-up, and then, Bang, I want to jump to you here on the same thing. Um, when you say uh, that it's helpful that you have a space with your uh, direct supervisor where you feel more comfortable. Um, there was a question earlier around what do we mean by safer space? Is that what, you, is that, what that means for you, um, that you have comfort in kind of being who you are or sharing yourself authentically? Or what is safe? A safe space for you means what? Or a safer space for you means what? A safe place for me for me, I had to create my own safe space. Uh, I had to, you know, be willing to say, to do all the ifs. If I said something and I lost this job today, what is it that, that I need to do to be able to 
support myself and my family. If uh, my boss did not like what I said, you know, I, I anticipate that and I start the conversation off with, you know, can we talk about something that may be a difficult situation? You know, um, and, and I had to really understand and to read body language and how a person wanted to be approached. You know, I can approach my, my leaders as, as accusing them of, of something, or I can approach them and say, you know what, I need you to help me understand something. So I think a lot of techniques are learned techniques. We're not born that way, but we also have to make a decision in our life. Do I want to go to work and be miserable every day, or do I want to go home and and be able to say, how was your day? It was a day, it was good. Or you're going to burden your family about the miseries of work. So some of this, I made a decision myself as to how I wanted to be at my job. Because, you know, I go to work, I go to all the meetings all the time. People that work with me know a lot of time I'm the only one out of 30, 40, 50 people. And so I had to, will you be comfortable with that? No, you'll never be comfortable with that. I would be lying if I said I, would be, I, I was comfortable because I do look around and say, well, why is there nobody like me? You know, and it does get lonely. It is isolating and all those things, but I have to take control of my own sanity and my own environment too. So there's tricks and tips that, that I learned along the way. I've been around quite a while, so it's, it's you know, a little bit easier for me. Thank you. We got experience there. Thank you. And I think more to adding what Tricia talked about earlier about the importance of creating spaces, uh, like black for black folks to be in affinity where we can, where they can, black folks can share uh, what's working, what doesn't work, all of that, right? The, the, the collective knowledge that's in black space. Uh, Benga, for you, what comes up for you when you for, when about specifically around the question around um, being the only one in a space and how you manage or navigate that, and then also what does a safer space mean for you? Well, for me, um, a, a safer space is you know uh, fortunately you know I have my own you know, office, so um, you know. It's a safe space. Um, I could go in my office, even though yes, my door is always open. Um, but just being in my area and being focused on my work to me, that is my safe space. Um, you know, sometimes when you just bury yourself into your work, um, you know, it, it becomes a safe haven for you. Just it's more like you're running away. You're running away to work, but you know, it's uh, it's it, it, it's that safe space for me. Um, you know, for, you know, my team, you know, being the only one, you know, sometimes you have to be able to adapt to different scenario, um, know exactly, you know, um, the kind of questions to ask um, and the questions not to ask. Because even though, um, you know, the, the question that's being asked is of good intention, it can be perceived as something else. So to me, I, I tend to... Um, think before I ask the questions because I try to see what, how will the person receiving that question, how will they, um, how will they receive that information? So, um, you know, that, that's what have you know, uh, worked for me and, and that's how I create my own little safe space. That's great. Thank you so much. And uh, Marilyn, for you. 
I think um, my office is my safe space. But I also could say, because um, I've been with Providence for such a long time, that I have developed some white allies within Providence where I feel I can actually speak to them um, and feel safe. But the challenge with that is that I sort of feel like, well, what's the safe space and how do you feel safe? But in reality, for Black people, when you're always the only person in a meeting, there's really no safe space. You feel like this heaviness of sadness because you want to be around people that are just like you, but it's just not enough of that within the organization. And I think that's one of the reasons my passion around the Black Caregiver Research Group, because I knew that we need to have a safe space for them. And so when we did our meetings and we started the Black Caregiver Research Group um, as Lisa um, Powell, as executive sponsor, we had so many caregivers who came forward like, wow, I didn't even know we had this many black caregivers and then Providence. And they were just so astonished about the fact that they can be around others just like them and just felt like, hey, what are you doing? Where do you get your hair done at? It was just such a sense of family. And so when we have an organization that's this large, we're pretty spread out throughout the organization, right? So I might be the only person in HR, Linda might be the only person in the clinic manager, and Venga. So I think it's just that, it's just the reality that we live in. And I think that's why it's so important around having diversity, because when you see someone like you, it's a sense of community. So we've got feedback from sometimes hearing that, you know, some correlators don't feel like all Blacks should be talking because they feel like, what are they up to? Well, they're not really up to anything. They just feel like, hey, I have someone I can have something in common with. I can go and be who my authentic self is within the organization. I don't have to watch every word that I say. I don't have to um, say something and the room becomes silent. So I think um, it, it's just really hard to say what's that safe space. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever have that safe space unless we truly um, do as Lisa Vance has described and really increase our diversity and be intentional about wanting to have diversity uh, within our organization. Thank you so much. Uh, there's so much there. Uh, uh, Tricia, what comes up for you in all this? One of the things that is coming up for me in this is I'm just wondering how many people on this webinar are either feeling surprised about the importance of safe space for black employees or other employees of color or LGBT employees, if that's a thought that has occurred to folks um, before. I wonder how many people um, take advantage or take for granted the fact that in most cases as white people, you are never in a situation where uh, you are the only white person in a room, and especially the higher up you go into leadership, you are more likely to be um, either in a room of all white people or overwhelming majority of white people. And so knowing that you that's an experience that you have taken for granted, um, are you able to step into a place of compassion and empathy and support for people who have a need to also be in a situation where they can look around and see people that look like them. Um, and then the other piece I just wanted to layer on, it's not just um, having a compassion for people who want to have a similar experience and knowing that they have to construct that experience. It's not just an automatic thing that happens but also knowing that we are um, in a 
space that has a racialized history. Healthcare used to be segregated. Um, black people, Latino people did not have uh, access to uh, health professions or to even uh, use the same hospitals. And it wasn't so long ago that um, that was true. It, in many of our generations, or our parents' generations, that was the way that healthcare was practiced. And so there's a reason behind why this experience exists, and um, really only recently was there any acknowledgement by major healthcare professional organizations that racism existed um, in the practice of medicine and other uh, healthcare disciplines. So um, it's important that it's not just you know, thinking about, oh, you know, we have this and they need that, but there's a whole history in, that constructed this reality that we need aware of. We've talked a lot about um, almost the cultural nature of the, the culture, the experience of culture in an organization, so how people are um, getting a, a general sense of safety or well-being or connectedness. But what we also know about the racial disparities that are happening in our space is that they're oftentimes not just cultural, they're institutional. In other words, they're built on policies. So there are policies that are in place um, that inhibit our ability to be as inclusive or diverse or equitable as possible, or there's missing policies uh, that can be, uh, that if we're in place would allow us to have a more equitable and inclusive experience. And so not that we get a, we're going to dive deep into that, but um, when you think about from a policy standpoint around how we organize our space institutionally, what comes up for you around what that looks like? We're really policy shifts. Can we, are we even thinking about uh, when we think about how to create a more equitable inclusive space? Yeah, I um, I think in particular in in this um, in this within this conversation around what are policies that help to um, create safety for Black employees um, and other. Uh, caregivers of color, LGBTQ caregivers. Um, one is just um, policy that's really clear about what is the leadership role for interrupting, addressing, correcting for um, interpersonal interactions that are racist or could be racist or create an unsafe working environment. Um, and I believe um, having policy around manager training, um, what's required, is it focused on issues related to discrimination, harassment, um, a welcoming environment, that those kind of things could be helpful. Um, understanding um, microaggressions and how those show up in the workforce. If, if this um, conversation is new for people, um, then chances are they're What's, what's new has been this undeniable, very public uh, experience of violent, uh, overtly violent racism. Probably people are less practiced when the racism is more nuanced or more uh, subtle. And so I think something like that is really important. Um, and, and understanding uh, 
how that plays out, not just for caregivers, but at the patient level as well. So I think that's just one example of policy, um, policy that um, supports black employees, other employees of color, LGBTQ employees, to gather, um, to have uh, focused conversations in safe spaces. Uh, sometimes um, employees get chastised for uh, talking with each other about these issues, um, and I think being really clear that this organization supports conversations about Black Lives Matter and about equity and about uh, being actively anti-racist, that means. And I know we'll have more conversations and more opportunities to think, um, think that through and talk about that. Thanks, Trisha. I just, it, it, it gets to the complexity of all this, that it's um, just this, this um, combination of individual actions, uh, of cultural norms and attitudes and beliefs, and then also policies that hold all of that in place. And so as we, as Providence thinks about how do we address this, you know, when we talk about transformation, we're talking about a holistic shift. How, what are the shifts to the culture, policies, individual behaviors, all of that in play? Um, which is why um, we're talking about a long-term journey around this work with folks. So um, there is so many questions out there. Um, I want to do this. Um, if we could, we're going to take about a minute or two and have all of the participants, um, all the listeners here on the webinar, uh, just take a moment to reflect on all of what you've heard. and. Um, just sit with it for a moment, and then in the Q&A, if you're um, open to just typing in just anything from what really resonated with you, um, what are you hearing that is either validating or you align with or it fits belief systems, all that kind of stuff, what has um, challenged you? So, again, we want to really honor the agreements. This isn't a place to be dis in disagreement with people, um, rather, and on the panelists, rather a place to sit in more curiosity. Like, this is challenging how I see things. This is challenging belief systems that I hold. This is challenging my worldview. Um, and if we can come from that place. Um, and then if there are questions, um, what questions are coming up for you? So we'll give um, our panels a second to actually breathe. There's a lot that people just shared, and, um, and all the participants a chance to write that in the Q&A. So we'll do that for about a minute or so here. Uh, Marilyn, I'm, I want to start with you here first, and there's one that has just kind of this repeated theme around Black Lives Matter, um, and I know you, you talked earlier about All Lives Matter, that kind of thing, and I'll, I'll ask it in the way it's written and then kind of also just the general theme of this, right, which I know you probably know is coming up, which is, you know, what to do, what do we do if, if a caregiver tells you they're in opposition um, of the Black Lives Matter movement, and kind of a broader conversation around um, how do we separate or can we separate the politics of um, the current po political environment that we're in um, and the Black Lives Matter movement? Is there is there such a thing as separation? Um, can we, you know, how do we address Black Lives Matter um, uh, and your perspectives on it? So I'll do my best to try to answer this. Um, I think um, it just 
again, I just kind of say there's like full transparency. Sometimes people say they are against the Black Lives Matters, and it could be genuine, like they are really against it, and there's no um, force that you have to be supportive of the Black Lives Matters. But some caregivers say that because they feel like if they agree with that, that they could potentially be isolated from the group, or then people will look at them differently. And we don't really know what those conversations are having with that caregiver, what that caregiver is hearing to make that caregiver feel like they have to, quote, say they don't agree with the Black Lives Matters. Um, again, some people, um, which is very few, may not have experienced racial discrimination. Um, do I think politics add to this? Why well, I think, um, um, currently right now, it does a little bit based on sometimes the words that are used currently from our leader um, that kind of stir up that around the politics. But I don't think Black Lives Matter is really about politics. It's really about human dignity of a person. How do we treat the poor and vulnerable? I mean, how do we treat people so they have the dignity to feel uh, like they're a human being and that they deserve the same freedom as everyone else? And so I think um, that's the whole notion around it, because I've had caregivers come to me and say, I just say I don't believe in Black Lives Matters because I feel so uncomfortable. Um, my leader don't talk about it. Um, they feel like, you know, all lives matter. And so I just I want to come to work. I want to get paid. I don't want to you know, start to feel like I'm being penalized. I feel like I'm being um, micromanaged because I'm agreeing with this Black Lives Matter situation. And I think what people don't recognize, and I know it's really hard, and I've talked to a lot of my allies who are white, and they're, they're so genuine because they really have never experienced it, right? So they don't know what it truly means um, to have these experiences, and they're really trying to understand it. But when you're a person of color, like for myself, who has two adult sons, you know, when I get a call in the middle of the night, my heart's beating because I feel like something's going to happen to my child or something's going to happen. One of my child is one of my sons is a police officer um, and, and and I fear for him. Um, and so I think it's really a challenge. And how do you um, coordinate that? But I think if we allow more of a safe space um, for those caregivers and help educate um caregivers around them, that it's okay for them to be who they are, and if they do believe in it, that it's okay. I'm not sure if I, yeah, I really, quite answered the question completely, but... No, you did. <laughs> I, I think. Uh, and um, Linda, I want to jump to you in a second. I just One of the things you're saying, it, it just reminded me of something I was working with in an organization, and they were saying um, it was a corporate environment, and they were wanting to put, um, uh, hey, uh, you're, uh, all all people of race, gender, sex, sexual orientation are welcome in the space, and they were just reflecting on, wow, um, how just saying you're welcome, regardless of your identity, is now a political stance, right? Um, and kind of where we are in the space, that just saying that Black Lives Matters now is a political stance um, versus just, well, I think we just like just a, a call to just inclusion. So we're in an interesting space where being inclusive. Uh, can be seen as a political stance now, um, and I appreciate you trying to really uh, disrupt that. That no, Black Lives Matter is about including Black lives when we talk about all lives, matter, all that kind of stuff. So just, I just appreciate that, uh, Linda. What comes up for you around Black Lives Matter and uh, the general sentiment about politics and not, or what it means to you? Merlin said that so well, uh, first of all. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of the right to vote. 
you know, was that political for black people to have the right to vote? That's the first thing. Uh, political, like defunding the police, I see that a lot. Well, you know, uh, is that political? Yeah, it could be. But you know what? I want the police when somebody kicked my back door in, you know. So how, when you talk about political and defunding police and, you know, uh, right to vote. And so sometimes things go hand in hand. You can be against Black Lives Matter, but I look at it as though you don't have to eat the whole pie. Maybe just a slice of that works for you and the other part don't work for you. And that's what I mean by, you know, if you defund the police, does that mean we don't want a police? Or, you know, are we going to take away policing? So so Black Lives Matter movement uh, really, to me, has taken on a lot of parts that don't even uh, really has anything to do with what I, my personal self, would be uh, would be supporting. Uh, a lot of parts of it I don't support. You know, some of the actions I should say I don't support, but but the movement I do. Um, I just think that uh, it's uh, if a black person does not want to support Black Lives Matter or don't believe in Black Lives Matter, I think that's really okay. I think it's about me respecting that person for their beliefs and they are respecting mine. And we're not hindering each other from, as long as we're being in that respectful space, we're not hindering each other's progress or journey. So, um, yeah, uh, that's it. And everything else that Marilyn said was great. I'm not going to try to repeat it. Absolutely. Uh, so we have time for one last question, and um, we're running out of time, so we're going to kind of do our best to be, if you, I hate to do this, to be as succinct as possible, because this is a hard question, too. Um, I think let's um, start here which is, with you, which is, uh, a patient refuses uh, to want a black caregiver to serve them. How do we support that caregiver? You know, I, I will actually, um, th that's a good question because I've actually experienced this. Um, while I was doing bedside, we actually had a patient that actually um, tattooed on his chest, um, you know, no black caregivers or whatever. And unfortunately on this day when he came to the hospital, you know, all all my team were all, you know, black, um, you know, or Hispanic or um, of all the race. And, um, you know, and what we end up doing was, you know, um, you know, I took a stand and, and just let the patient know that, you know, you know, we're here to care for you. Um, you, you have a right to do whatever you want to do, but, you know, we also have to care for you the best possible way that, that, that we have to. You know, um, it was a difficult conversation uh, because the pa the patient still refused and didn't really want, um, you know, the services from a, you know, black caregiver. But when they need the help, and, and later on, the, the patient actually got into trouble and needed help. And the doctor that came to also help to rescue him was also black. So, you know, we all got into this profession, not just because, um, you know, we have love and we have passion to care for anyone with different race. Um, 
if I have a caregiver that, you know, is experiencing something like this, you know, it will be something that I will have to, you know, for the caregiver's safety, you know, I will have to replace that person uh, with, you know, a, a white caregiver uh, because it's one thing for the patient to refuse. There's also the trauma that actually comes up for the caregiver because you never really know if the patient is trying to find fault on, on, on the care where they're going to get into trouble um, and they are working on long shift and they don't really need that. So in the best interest of the of the patient and for the caregiver, you know, I'll, I'll move the caregiver. Now, in the sense where you don't really have anyone um, um, on the shift that can actually care for that patient, you know, then that's when, you know, uh, we can get more like the house supervisor involved, the, the manager, just to be able to make sure that we communicate with this patient and let them know exactly what they're going to be getting to. Um, um, and knowing that, you know, the, we're doing our best to provide the best care possible for that patient. So good. Trisha, any, any thoughts for you? I know it's a deep and long question, but quick ones are what? <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like um, Bangab was very good at identifying uh, what would happen in the moment. And I think for me, the question is, is that um, built into policy? Is there clear communication when people enter that facility about Providence's stand on that? Um, is there broader um, external communication uh, to the communities? Is, are we seeing patterns of that in certain communities where it's happening more than others and there needs to be more um, broad community dialogue about that? So I think, you know, it's, there's the importance of centering the experience of the caregiver as well as making sure that there's high-quality care, but recognizing that those attitudes didn't show up when people got to the door of Providence, they exist out in the community. So really thinking about what's a holistic response to that. Um, okay, so we are um, slowly uh, running out of time, and there's been lots of questions about um, what do we, you know, what do we do? Where at least initial steps forward? And um, so we want to just. Uh, highlight a couple of seven steps that we're working with other organizations uh, in doing in terms of how do we begin to move forward in this conversation and kind of get out of stuck if we're in stuck. And I want to just preface this with um, uh, something that Linda said and something that Marilyn said today. Um, and, and I'm going to paraphrase, Linda, so if I don't get this totally right, it's kind of, let me just say what I gleaned off of when we were talking about safer spaces and you were talking about the calculations you're doing um, around, you know, hey, if this doesn't go right, do I have job security? Do I have all these kinds of things? And I think sometimes um, white people, because they're not uh, having the experience of people of color, don't always understand the kind of, um, I call it like mental gymnastics that people of color are doing to try to figure out how do I say this in a way that keeps people engaged, doesn't have them get frustrated, um, doesn't have me lose my job, doesn't have me be seen as, you know, all these different things. So there's so much work that is going in, uh, in place to kind of figure out how do I safely have this conversation because so much can be on the line. And I'll just say there hasn't been very little history in this country of black people uh, surfacing racism 
um, or speaking out against racism in any space and that working out well for black people. There's very, very little um, history of that. And so, you know, I imagine black folks bring that history, you know, as a person of color myself, bring that history in and trying to navigate how do I, how do I bring this forward? And at the same time, Marilyn, I appreciate what you had said, which is there is no real safe space when it comes uh, for, for you as a black person. No such thing as a safe space. Um, and so I think when I combine both of those kinds of experiences, I'm, I'm in a space of wondering if there's not necessarily a safe space, what's the work we can do to create safer spaces? for black folks to uh, uh, begin to engage in this uh, this process, for white folks to be in this conversation, brown for all of us to be in this conversation uh, in a way that allows um, black people to be really thriving in our spaces. And so when we think about these initial steps forward, uh, what I want to make sure that we're saying is that, hey, this isn't the anecdote here. This isn't, gonna, this isn't the cure-all, that, that the cure-all may not exist. Um, but we may be just actually trying to figure out how to get better every single day in this conversation. And so, um, you know, the first thing I just want to build on is um, a little bit of what Tricia had said earlier around white people needing to do their work. Um, and so there is a plethora of readings and viewings and now listening from podcasts that people can engage that will help them get on this journey around race equity. And uh, at the end, we'll, uh, at the conclusion of this, we'll send out actually um, a PDF to folks that have all kinds of resources that people can engage to help you start to get more comfortable in the conversation or at least get comfortable with the discomfort of the conversation. And I also want to name that this work isn't just for white people, that there's lots of work for us as folks of color to engage in as learners around this, around how we're internalizing the racism that we're engaged in, how we build communities across the, um, the intersecting issues that show up when we intersect gender and sexual orientation into this conversation. All of that are there. Um, and so there's lots for all of us to be learning um, you know, around this work. And so the, the best and first thing that I think we can do is just commit to positioning ourselves as learners and start learning. Um, I think also what you're hearing, and I hope what we're trying to model uh, is getting modeled today, is this idea of inclusive leadership. And for us, inclusive leadership isn't just about, hey, how do you have people feeling a stronger sense of um, belonging or feeling a sense of welcome or even a sense of safety. It's about how do you position those most impacted as actually leaders in policymaking or decision-making around policies or the culture that's impacting them, right? So um, when we think about steps forward, it is how are we uh, creating space for black, native, and other caregivers of color uh, in general uh, to be decision makers or drivers of how to address these issues within your departments or in your spaces? How do we allow them the space to lead? Um, and in that, it's not just that um, we're, we're saying, uh, hey, on your own time, go do this. It's how do we actually provide and create resource for this? So we see this as uh, a valuable aspect of the, the work that we're doing as caregivers as a whole. So how are we providing this with time and money to provide resources for black, native, and caregivers of color to engage in racial affinity work in perpetuity? So not just like, hey, how are we doing this now? 
how do we deal with this now? Or it's like, how do we use resource groups or racial affinity as a real vehicle for us to help understand, help us understand how do we create spaces where everyone can thrive, right? Uh, and so we think about that. We think not just when we talk about uh, time and resource um, that uh, we're talking both about affinity and how do we just create space to belong, but also policy changes. And also when we think about this, sometimes we don't think of listening as something we can do, but I think you're hearing from panelists that is such a huge uh, action step, right, that we uh, position ourselves as listeners and learners in relationship to our black colleagues. And what, part of what we're listen, we want to be listening for is not just, is, is in part, hey, what's surfacing for you right now? But we also want to be able to listen for uh, and ask for solutions to the pre-existing racism uh, that was in the space at a cultural policy level. So in other words, what um, this whole pandemic is surfacing in a lot of ways is the ways in which uh, racism is, is rooted in everything we're doing. It's just highlighting all of the disparities that are already kind of built into our system. So part of the work with us as listeners are what are the root causes here um, and why is this continuing to happen? And in connection to that, uh, it's not enough to just listen. Or when we talk about people positioning black folks or people of color in general in uh, decision-making uh, positions of leadership, but just hearing what they have to say, we have to be willing to act on those suggestions, recommendations, um, those decisions that are um, uh, being advocated for by our black uh, uh, colleagues. So another, and what that's going to mean is that I imagine some of the solutions and ideas that are going to surface from these communities are going to be different than what you, uh, that white folks would traditionally see as the best way to go about doing things or the traditional way we go of doing things. And part of what we've got to remember is that traditional decision-making has, has been part of what has gotten us into this space. Traditional decision-making hasn't closed racial disparities. These racial disparities continue to widen, right? So we need new ideas. And part of those, uh, what we see are those new ideas, that innovation, that creativity, the ability to create something new is going to come from the communities who understand what they need most them, themselves. We've got to be willing to act on uh, those uh, recommendations and be willing to do things differently and prioritize. Uh, and in connection to that, oftentimes what we see when we talk about doing things differently is the challenge here that is kind of not really stated but um, is in place is that oftentimes in organizations, white people's comfort is the highest priority in the space. That keeping white people comfortable is seen as the only way to move this work forward, that if white people get uncomfortable in this conversation, they'll stop engaging, they'll do what they can to um, kind of thwart uh, equity efforts one way or the other. And I think there's work. Uh, when I talk about white people, again, we're not talking about all white people. We're talking about patterns that kind of show up in spaces here. So part of what we need to be able to do is prioritize staff of color's needs, uh, their ideas, suggestions over white people's comfort. 
Right? We don't want to see comfort as being the prerequisite on whether we move forward or not. In fact, we saw in the agreement uh, that there's kind of an agreement to be willing to experience discomfort. And that's going to be just a national, natural part of this process is that uh, we're all going to feel uncomfortable. We're going to be doing things very differently. And then finally, I think that you heard this in the panelists say that there is some power in acknowledging what is happening. Even if you don't know exactly what to say or exactly what to do, I think sometimes I've seen leaders say, I'm not saying something because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, I don't want to say something that unintentionally uh, frustrates somebody one way or the other or um, creates more harm one way or the other. But what we're seeing is that the silence around this is actually saying more than anything. And so acknowledging what's happening, acknowledging that, um, you know, that we are seeing really traumatic um, visuals here every single day um, becomes really important. And even acknowledging that you as a leader don't have all the answers, but you're looking to partner with people really impacted by this work to help figure out those answers. If we had more time, I'd kind of walk through some of the resources, but I do want to just name a couple very quickly, and then we're going to hand it over to Lisa to close this out. Um, we've talked a lot about trauma. I cannot recommend this book more. Um, and uh, my grandmother's hands does a great job of making trauma accessible, but he does an amazing job of uh, racializing how trauma uh, impacts both black people and white people as well. This is an interesting book and read. Uh, if we look at the next slide, there is um, Ruth King's uh, work around mindful, uh, called book around mindful of race, in which she talks uh, in amazing fashion both around the role of mindfulness in this work. Uh, also talks does have some great frameworks for how race shows up in the space. Uh, so actually really powerful frameworks around that, but also some really uh, good solutions around how we navigate or keep ourselves whole in a system designed to kind of tear us apart, right? And, you know, as much as there's, you know, there's readings around white fragility and for white folks, um, how to be an anti-racist, uh, anything by Kendi <laughs> you want to read, um, and on and on and on. There's so much work to go. And, again, we'll send a PDF with um, all these readings. If reading is not your thing, uh, there's plenty of um, things to be listening to. These are just examples seen on radio, specifically the season two, helps people really explore uh, wide identity development around this work and uh, what, what, uh, how that's kind of come into fruition and how it's centered in everything we do. There's things like Code Switch and, of course, 1619, which does an amazing job of highlighting from a black perspective the foundation of the country. And again, if you're not a listener and you want to watch, there's so much to engage. I could not recommend more 13th uh, as an example of just the way in which this whole thing is structured racially. And the one thing in all the work we do, we know leadership will be watching this. There's a documentary I, I highly, highly recommend called Race, the Power of Illusion. And specifically, there's three episodes. The third episode is, to me, a prerequisite for anybody engaging in this work. Uh, unbelievable way to kind of talk about how race has been developed and organized in this country as we understand that race isn't actually a real thing, a social construct. And, um, so why? Why did we construct race? So there's so much there. Um, and again, we'll send um, this out. But again, given that there's so much there, it's kind of so little excuse for us to really engage as learners. On our end, uh, thank you so much. I do want to say to the panel, 
um, how much appreciation I personally have. And again, I don't want to minimize the history here of how people of color have spoken up in spaces and the backlash that's shown up both subtly and overtly. But I think it takes some real courage to sit in front of, I don't know how many hundreds of people and be honest about your experience of race. Uh, and I just, I just have nothing but honor and respect for the courage, the commitment to race equity that it takes to put race equity um, in front of kind of your own personal discomfort or worries about how people respond. And I hope the listeners um, can, can at least in all of us hear some of uh, the courage that it's taken. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the courage, the wisdom, the thoughtfulness, that you all um, shared today. And I'm really hoping that this spear, this kind of spearhead kicks off what is an amazing journey um, with us, uh, with you all in Providence. So thank you. And I'll kick it over to Lisa here for closing remarks. Wow, uh, what an incredible hour and a half. And I do want to thank Hanif uh, and his colleagues from the Center, Center for Equity and Inclusion I want to give a great call out and shout out to our panelists. And again, I can't have said it better than Hanif said about your bravery to be honest and answer things from your perspective. Um, each of us has responsibility in this case to acknowledge what's happening, to also acknowledge that we have a lot of learning to do. We need to be open to that. And we are also in the beginning of a journey. Uh, and uh, it, this will take a significant time for us to determine how we continue to move forward. But I know I can say with my heart, we have a commitment to this work. Black lives matter. All of our lives matter, but black lives are in threat. And we're committed to this journey with all of you. Uh, and I think what we'll gather from this time with all of you in the comments are incredible amounts of ideas and concepts for our Providence Response Group to move forward with as our priorities. So not only did we learn a lot from Hanif and our panelists, but I think we also learned a lot as an organization about some of the thoughts and the concepts and things that our caregivers are dealing with as they go to work every day with good intention. So at this point, I just want to again say thank you for everyone. Thank you to our technical team to organize us everyone who participated today. We look forward to more opportunities with Hanif and his team and our wonderful group that joined us today. Have a great day. Have a great 4th of July, everyone, and make sure that you're committed to listening and learning. Thank you.